I am uh, not going to stand up here for very long, just me, because we have a, um, a spotlight. Oh, and this one is not adjustable. Yep, okay. Yeah. You know what? It's fine. I'll, I'm, I've already made a thing about it. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, keep it a little short today so that we can have a, a conversation with one of our family members that I'm very excited about. Um, you want to start by saying today's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Um, it is a day full of joy and excitement for some, and perhaps full of grief or other complex emotions for others. And so whether you are celebrating or um, feeling those big feelings that are outside of joy and happiness, um, we are all sitting with you in those feelings, okay? You are held in love. But as I um, prepared to, I'm, I'm like one of those people that lives in complex feelings. I like have joy, so much joy today. Um, and also I'm like, oh, sometimes my mom, sometimes my mom stinks. Um, <laughs> but I couldn't help but um, think of mothering as I considered our topic today, which is being on call. As I read the scripture, which we will do together in a moment, I think we will see a really cool example of the power of, a, of being available to our siblings in Christ um, when, we, when they are in need um, and need pro, uh, care provided to them. And the idea of mothering, this idea of mothering, has come up recently for me um, as I have followed new and diverse theologians and authors um, and as they have started to look at this idea of what the divine feminine looks like in Christianity. The divine feminine is generally thought to represent the part of our consciousness that connects us to qualities like intuition, feeling, nurturing, receptivity, and interconnectedness. And I think it's important to recognize that the divine feminine, like femininity in general, is not tied to gender. Like femininity, it doesn't, like femininity does not belong only to women, and masculinity doesn't belong to men. The qualities of the divine feminine are alive in all of us. I, this thing, who have I, I've talked to six people about this little puffball, I'm not working with it anymore. <laughs> Sorry, at least, I, at least I found it. <laughs> oh, no, I don't know where I am. Okay, um, the qualities of the divine feminine are alive in all of us, um, though they may not be the dominant characteristics for some of our personalities. The primary act of the divine feminine, which I call mothering, likewise does not only belong to women, as we'll see in today's text, but has historically been tied to the role of women-identified people. And this isn't to deny any feelings of men um, that hold these qualities um, or men-identified people, and it is also not, to meant, not meant to cause grief to those of us that mother without holding the title of mothers. I think these ideas have shown up more in the people that I have followed as many of us have begun to recognize and validate this very expansive nature of God, a nature that lies outside of the patriarchal constructs that we have often reduced them to. 
Often our attention can be brought to stories in scripture that highlight this very strong, powerful, mighty God, Christ, and Holy Spirit. But today, we're going to look at a story that sees miracle in a little bit of a softer context. If you would like to follow along with me, I'm going to read from Acts 9, verse 36 through 43. And I'm, I'm going to read from the First Nations Version just because I like it. So if you don't have it, you can just listen. Now, in the nearby village of Beauty, Joppa, there lived a follower of Creator Sets Free whose name was Dear Woman, Tabitha, which is translated into our tribal language as Dear Eyes, Dorcas. She was a doer of many good deeds and always gave to the ones who had little. During the time that Stands on the Rock, Peter, was in Almond Tree, Lida, she became ill and crossed over to death. So they ceremonially washed her body and laid her in an upstairs room. Since Almond Tree is near to Village of Beauty, the followers there sent two men to Stands on the Rock, Peter, begging him to come right away. Stands on the Rock got right up and went with the men. When they arrived, they took him to where her body lay in the upstairs room. The widows came and stood next to him. The tears rolled down their faces as they showed him the beautiful garments dear eyes had made when she was with them. Stands on the rock sent them all outside. He then fell to his knees and sent his voice to the great spirit. After he prayed, he turned toward the dead body of the woman. Dear woman, he said to her, get up. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Stands on the rock, she sat up. He reached out his hand to her and helped her up. He then called all the holy ones and the widows and stood her before them. She's alive. Word of this spread throughout all the village of beauty. And, put, put, and many put their trust in our honored chief, creator sets free. This is the word of the Lord. So a couple of things stood out to me in this text. The first is, at the end of chapter 9 of Acts, Peter performs a couple of miracles. Before visiting Dorcas, he heals a paralyzed man named Aeneas. And it feels important for me to note that the person we've just read about him bring, uh, bringing back to life was a woman. A woman whose name is given, which is an honor not always given to women in our um, holy text. Um, and the treatment of her at her death shows us that she was an important disciple in her community, a woman very loved, so loved they couldn't live without her. We don't know much about her or why this is, except for what the text tells us, which is that she made clothing and she was devoted to good works and acts of charity, as NRSV translates it. It seems likely, with these two pieces of information, that she made those clothes for people that didn't have any, maybe. And while that doesn't seem revolutionary, Peter sees it as invaluable enough to visit her in death. Dorcas's work stood out to me as one of the displays of mothering in this text, that she provided this very foundational care and nurture for others. She clothed them. She protected their bodies with garments. The other focus of our text today is the way that Peter comes to this woman when he's asked to. He just shows up when they ask him to. 
He is in another town. He's working. He's providing miracles and healing paralyzed people. But he comes, and he listens to them talk about how much they loved Dorcas. And when he arrives, he doesn't do anything flashy. He prays with her. He sits with her body. And I just had this image of a man deeply moved by the love and care that this woman provided for her community. He's receptive to the women that ask him to come, values the nurturing nature of Dorcas, and stays with her because of this. And then this act of care brings her back to life. Peter's mothering actions are literally life-bringing. Our opportunities to care for others, to show up when needed, to sit with those that are ill, to pray with our mourning siblings are not exactly exciting parts of our roles as followers of Christ. In fact, they can sometimes feel quite taxing to us, <laughs> come at inconvenient times when we feel like we're doing something more important. We not, might not feel like we're actually doing much in those moments because there's nothing tactilely produced. Perhaps we don't want to show up for these opportunities for other reasons because they put us in a place where we feel too vulnerable. They require us to step into an emotional world where people are hurting. And yet, God is clearly present in these moments of care and connection. I didn't put this in here, but I just had a memory. Um, theologian Simone Weil, um, when she was asked about Christ's presence, she said that Christ was present today, well, she died in, in World War II, but World War I? I can't remember. Um, she said that Christ was present within the relationship between friends, that neither person was able to experience Christ without feeling the loving friendship of the other. So the creation of Christ was in their connectedness. That just came to my mind. I always thought that was so beautiful. And so we see Christ and God clearly present in these moments of connection and care when Peter prays with Dorcas. So that when we tap into our femininity, maybe step into these roles, we're not losing any of these other miraculously strong qualities that we have tied to God. They're not at risk in any way. We're simply experiencing and expressing the life-giving fullness of God. Amen. That's all I've got today. I'm going to invite Mike um, to the front. I'm kind of excited that I have a man coming to the front today for this. Um, Mike, if you do not know him, um, yeah, I think so, um, so that the the podcast can pick it up. Um, and um, do you want a stool? Do you want that stool? Um, this is Mike Doherty. He's one of our elders here at Trinity. Um, he, I consider him a dear friend of mine. Um, and we met when I was in my CPE internship at St. Vincent when I was in seminary. And he was a resident at the same hospital. And he overheard me. Oh, you don't have to sit on it. <laughs> yeah. It's not required. <laughs> uh, we met because I was talking to one of my fellow interns about um, preaching the day before. And he said, 
preach, Brittany. And then he showed up the next week. And they've been here ever since. <laughs> um, Mike uh, finished his residency and is currently a chaplain. And so um, this concept of being on call felt quite appropriate to talk to him about. And so I, uh, have, I gave him a couple questions to think through. Um, and so we're just going to have a conversation and invite you all in to hear it, okay? Mike, the, the first thing, I, I love stories. I tell stories all the time. And so I'm going to ask you to tell us a story. Um, what, what's an experience or story you have about, like, a time you were on call? I'm actually going to share two yeah. because um, it kind of shows uh, a range of what sure. chaplains have to deal with. Sure. <clears throat> um, so both of these are examples that happened in January. <clears throat> uh, I think it was on a Wednesday night. Um, I was called into uh, Community North Hospital um, at about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, a baby had died, and the family wanted a baptism for the baby. And so uh, I went there and um, didn't, didn't often we ask questions of the nursing team prior to getting there, um, you know, what is the situation? And uh, I failed to do that on this particular time. And so when I got there, um, the baby was born uh, prematurely at 25 weeks and lived a couple of hours and then died. And uh, the mother was COVID positive. <coughs> um, they don't know if the baby died because of COVID complications or what the issue was. And so I got there and put on all my garb and the N95 mask and a face shield and, you know, um, obviously gloves and, and whatnot. And it kind of felt impersonal, like there's a barrier because I have all of these things on. And, uh, and went into the room um, with the little shell that we use and the, and the holy water that we use. And um, this baby, could fit in the palm of your hand and was perfectly formed, um, incredibly beautiful. And uh, so I was in that uh, room for about an hour and um, uh, this is the first baby of this uh, husband and wife that they lost, I mean the first baby, and, and they lost their first baby. And um, the husband at one point um, just was overcome with grief and so I just held him as he cried. And then he said, I need to be strong for my wife. And I said, to be strong for your wife means you need to grieve and express the emotions that you feel. And, um, and so he continued to cry. And I baptized the baby. And then I um, charted him and came home. I got home about one in the morning and So that happened on a Wednesday. On a Saturday, I get called to Community South, and I live about 50 minutes from Community South. So um, I was told that uh, a patient was placed on comfort care measures, which means they're taking off all of life support and measures. Um, and the uncle, not, uh, would be the brother of the patient, uh, requested uh, a chaplain visit. So I get in my car and, and I drive um, to the hospital and uh, get there and uh, 
he is in the room along with a with a woman and um, and I see them kind of in each other's space a little bit and I and I come into the room and and often when I don't know a situation I, I ask what happened um, so there's a couple of reasons why I ask what happened um, one I'm measuring um, what kind of shock level um, people are, what, what is their state of shock? Uh, the reason why you want to ask a question like that is because it helps you understand where they are on that kind of emotional spectrum. Um, if they are in shock, uh, you want to move them out of shock and into grief as best as you can. And so asking a question like that moves them out of their emotive framework more into a cognitive framework, which then helps them process and grieve. And uh, so I asked, what happened? And, uh, and the man was silent. Um, he's probably in, in his late 70s, early 80s. Uh, the woman was um, and then she answered and answered, and the emotion, the, the feeling that was coming out was, was anger. And, um, and so that tells me something, too. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I said, I'm so sorry that this is happening, and, and, uh, and expressed empathy. And, uh, and then she gets in his face, not my face and just starts ringing him out. Um, F-bombs flying, and, uh, and so I'm just witnessing this. And, uh, and then I just say, what's going on here? Because I need some context. Um, well, she ignores me and continues ringing him out, and he's just, he's not responding at all to her anger. And, uh, and so I tell him, I say, let's, let's step out of the room. So we stepped out of the room and, uh, and we started to talk and then she followed us out into the hallway and was continuing to ring him out. And I said, it's okay to be angry, but you need to do that in the room. Like we can't disturb the other patients and families and staff that are here. So, I know, based on my own counseling and my own um, training, that anger is often uh, a secondary emotion. And I know that this is, um, can be controversial within the therapist world. Uh, it, is, it is what I uh, purport to. Um, it's what I believe. So some psychologists would say that anger is a secondary emotion uh, pointing to the primary emotions of fear or sadness. Um, so that's what I believe. Now, not everybody believes that. So Brittany could have a different perspective. She's a counselor. We're going out I don't. Us, so. <laughs> <laughs> so in what I said to her is, I said, I know you're in pain. Like it's an expression of her pain. And um, part of the what she is dealing with is her or it was her mom uh, was the patient. Um, she felt like it was her responsibility. She lived with her mom. 
and uh, and she found her unresponsive, and and uh, she felt like she could have gotten there earlier. Mm -hmm. So she was dealing with guilt on that level. Mm -hmm. She was also dealing with guilt because um, when you make a decision to place somebody on comfort care measures, um, sometimes people say, I'm killing that person, if that's where she was at. So not only could have, she thought she could have prevented this thing from happening, now she was killing her mom. Mm -hmm. um, so very, uh, very anger, uh, very forceful, very in your face, like at, at points she was literally like this in his face, mm -hmm. right? You backed up, I right? I did, <laughs> and I trust you. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. so I'm a person that I, I don't like anger, I don't like to be around it. Um, I sometimes express it, of course, because I'm a human being, but, but, uh, but I don't like it. So, um, but I know in my role as a chaplain, this is what we deal with, and, um, and I'm becoming more comfortable in that role. So I ended up taking him to the chapel, and she stayed up uh, in the room. Well, in the chapel, he expressed to me that um, his sister is a Christian, and he is a Christian, and the woman that was angry, um, the daughter of the patient, uh, became a converted Jew. And so my mere presence helped set her off. Um, now, she wasn't angry at me. I was a projection of her anger. Um, and so knowing that information, um, I knew that there is no way that I can explore her grief um, because I'm going to set that off. So I ministered to him, and then I charted and, and went home. <laughs> so those are two examples, and you never know what kind of situation you're going to walk into. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mike. A uh, couple more questions. Um, part of uh, the role of the chaplain is to just be on call. You know, you get like your life, even if you're stationed in one hospital, is to go where you're called to go. You have a even more unique role in that, like you can be called to multiple places. You've just described two stories in two different places around the city. What does it mean for you to kind of orient your days and nights and life to just be be on call? I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but uh, I'm I'm glad he's being honest. <laughs> I actually don't like it at all. I don't want to be needed. Um, so if any of you know the Enneagram, I'm, I'm an Enneagram one with a nine wing, not a two wing. Um, the two is the helper, that's not me. Um, <laughs> which, which may seem ironic because I'm a chaplain, right? And, and, uh, and, and I am helpful, obviously, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, when I, when I you do in, use both your wings. Okay, that's fine. But I don't like it. I don't like it because I like routine. I like structure. And when you're on call, um, you have none of that. Mm -hmm. Plus, um, I have uh, what is commonly known as pager anxiety. Uh, and I have that. Uh, which started when I was a PRN chaplain for Howard, which is in Kokomo. And, uh, and they would page me at all times of the night um, for things that a chaplain would need to be paged for. <laughs> and I would off 
often travel there, which is an hour from where we live, and get there and the family has left and then I came home. So that would make me mad. Um, a moment when anger is really appropriate. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, of course I was very nice to the staff, but, uh, but very, very <laughs> annoying. Um, and so I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah. I, I'm grateful. I, I'm surprised and also grateful that you shared yeah. that. Um, okay. Uh, that actually helps lead us into our last question. Um, knowing that it is difficult is not your, uh, uh, not the way you would operate if you were given the choice. How do you prepare yourself and care for yourself and your family knowing that this is a part of your vocation? Yeah, I, uh, I think my wife um, experiences some of the downside of being on call. Um, so I have my pager, which is right beside on my side of the bed. Um, because the paging system is not exactly, um, it's, it's interesting in 2022, uh, there are still some antiquated um, methods to how we do things. And so Does I everyone in here know what a pager is? Okay. June is shaking her head. No! Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. So I get paged for everything I would normally get paged at at the hospital that I work at, which I work at Community Heart and Vascular Hospital. So I get paged for um, code STEMIs, which is like a heart attack is occurring, um, code strokes, code cat, anyway, you don't need to know all of these, but I get paged for a lot of things. When we're on call, we are only um, responsible to, to calling back to see if it's even appropriate for us to go in, is when we're, we're paged by staff, which is a, it's a numeric, so the pager that I have is an alphanumeric pager, so it, uh, it allows um, words as well as numbers. And so often the pages that I get are, are um, alpha pages. And uh, when we're on call, we are only uh, requested during the week because we also work during the day. Uh, we're only requested to go in uh, if we're paged by staff for one reason or, or another. And on weekends, that also includes code blue, which is when um, somebody is um, part of stuff. So my dear wife also wakes up every time there's a page. And some nights, there's like five or six pages. Um, so your question was, how do, how do we prepare? <laughs> and um, care for yourself. Yeah. I would say my wife and my family um, do this much better than I do. Um, so uh, the kids' dad is a, is a surgeon, and so they're kind of used to um, used to him being on call, and so they're kind of used to that life. Um, Abby's used to that life. I'm not used to that life. <laughs> um, and so it's a challenge for me, to be honest. But uh, as I was reflecting on this question, it dawned on me that um, I can be frustrated and annoyed and um, have some anxiety. And it's interesting to me that as soon as I step foot in that hospital, 
um, this is way before I even go meet the patient or family, there is this kind of peace that comes over me. So I can't explain it. Of course, as a Christian, I would say that's the Spirit of God um, working through me and, and causing me to be calm and peaceful. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing that I do is I, uh, when I chart, uh, I reflect on that visit. And that, that reflection is noted in the chart and, and the things that I say. But I say that here today because when I chart, that's a way for me to process my own emotions and my own feelings. The times that I have um, the most difficulty are times where I feel counter-transference, which means um, something happened in that visit that triggered something in me from my life. So often it's in, uh, it either has to do with my own kids or, or my parents. So um, in those moments in which I encounter that counter-transference, uh, I often send Abby a text and say, I'm thinking of Jenna or I'm thinking of Alexa or um, I'm thinking about when, when my dad dies. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Can I give you a hug? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sorry, I'm, I'm an audible hugger. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I knew that was going to be great. Um, yeah, I, d I didn't prepare anything for after this part, but uh, I'm just reflecting on how grateful I am that you named the difficult, not negative, but difficult feeling of being on call, anger or like fear or any of those things and how valid they are um, and how like you don't, you don't push them away to do your work. Like um, sometimes our work is really hard um, but if we don't let ourselves feel those emotions, we're not actually going to be able to do it. And so all of those things are, are really valuable. So thank you so much. Uh, if you would like to go to your bulletin. You know what? Will you pray with me first? <laughs> <sighs> Loving God.